Good morning. You know, the Bible has a number of stories that haunt me in good ways. And one of them is one I want to share with you now. This is a true story. Uh, Jesus was coming into a village one time. And he comes in and there's these 10 men that had leprosy, 10 of them. And when you had leprosy in that time and in that place, it wasn't just the horrific nature of that disease. It was also that you were considered unclean. And so you couldn't be a part of the community. So Jesus comes in to this village and these 10 lepers, they say, Lord, Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus had mercy on them. And he said, you guys, you go to the priest and see what happens. And they go to the priest and the Bible says they weren't just healed. It says they were cleansed. They were cleansed which means they could go back and fully engage in community. This was amazing. This was life-changing. And of those 10, guess how many came back to say thanks and to praise God? Just one. We're about to turn the corner towards fall, and I can't wait. I, I've said this a bunch of times before. One of my favorite times of the year is to just look out over the pavilion on kickoff Sunday and to see all these different ages and life stages doing life and having fun and, and sharing food. I'm just, I'm pumped for this fall, you guys. But before we go there, let's just pause and say thank you for this summer, this amazing summer that God has just let, let us through. Would you do that with me? All right, let's do that. Father, we want to be like the one. We want to come before you right here, right now, before we dive into this amazing fall that you've got for us. And we want to say thank you. Father, before we even knew that there was going to be a new church. You saw this day where we would be moving into these brand new spaces for our kids and that our teens would be able to use and for so much more. And God, you saw that. You called us here. You opened these doors. And for that, we say thank you. And Father, we want to thank you also for all these amazing opportunities that our kids and our teens had this, this summer. For Camp ECC and for chick and moose and all those great opportunities that they had we thank you for that father lord we thank you for all these new faces and all these people that you've drawn into our midst lord it's not us that that are attracting anything father it's, it's you're doing something here and you've got plans and purposes for everybody that you brought so we thank you father for that we want to thank you for this denomination that we're part of this family of churches that not only welcomed us in but it was their idea to launch this thing and this summer, we had a chance to gather with them at that annual meeting. And, Father, we're so thank you for those partners. Father, we thank you that so many of us got a chance to go down to visit our partners in Juarez. And what a joy it was to serve alongside those brothers and sisters. We're thankful for that. Father, you have done so many things in our midst this summer. You've taught us so many things. You've, you've provided in so many ways. And so now as we begin to go on with this new season... We do so by thanking you and, and praising you for your faithfulness. We do this in Jesus' name. A Amen. All right. Well, fall. Time to dive in. Fall is back to school time. Uh, right? So I thought we'd start with a quiz. My degree is in education. Let's start with a quiz. All right. Now, we're not going to put the, uh, it's going to be multiple choice. So sigh of relief. It's multiple choice. Okay. So. We're going to give you this quiz. Now, here's what it is, but we're not going to put it up on the screen yet, your multiple choice. I want you to see if you can get it, the answer in your head before we, we give you some options to choose from. So what I want you to be thinking about is, is what area of the country or of the world, what area of the world am I describing, 
And what century am I describing? I'm going to be talking about some religious groups that were all happening in a certain time, in a certain place. And I want you to see if in your head you can think, what century is this? And what area of the world is this? Where all of these religious groups were operating. All right, here we go. In the same part of the world and in the same century, there were religious people, a group of them, who considered themselves the guardians of holiness. They developed endless lists of do's and don'ts that they themselves couldn't keep, but that didn't stop them from judging everyone around them for failing. All right, so that was one group that was happening in this part of the world in, that, in this certain century. There were also at that time and in that place other religious groups that believed culture was so corrupt they had to isolate themselves from it. The only chance they had was to go off and to, and to go off to some faraway place where, where nobody else was around so that they wouldn't be corrupted. That was another group that was operating in that time and that place. In this same part of the world and in the same century, there were also people who were considered to be the authoritative experts in, in the law. And so they were the ones that they said, we've got it all figured out, and they were very quick to correct you if you had doctrine that disagreed with their doctrine. Now, these people were also, to be fair, accused of missing the point when it came to what matters most. And then there was another group in that time and that place that aligned themselves with the rich and the powerful, even if they had to compromise their values to do it. All right, so here we go. I'm going to put some up on the screen now. We're going to put a multiple choice selection that you can choose from. Here's the question. Which region, which century have we been describing? 21st century America, 1st century Palestine, or C, all the above? C, all of the above. And on the back of your notes, I want you to take a look at something, if you would. I've got examples of Jewish subgroups. All four of these groups were operating and active during the time of Jesus in first century Palestine. And as we go through this list, see if in your head, don't shout any names out loud, but think in your head if you know any religious people like this. Do you know any religious people today in our time, in our region, like the Pharisees? Their name meant separated ones in Hebrew. They developed countless rules that they believed were God-honoring even though they weren't necessarily found in the Bible. They were called out by Jesus for their relentless judgment and reluctance to extend grace. With a show of hands, anyone know any religious people like this? Really, only six of us. They're out there. Just trust the six of us. They are out there. All right? Then there's the Essenes. They were accused by the Pharisees. Get this. These people were so anti-culture, so afraid of the world, that they considered the Pharisees to be, quote, seekers of smooth things. This quote shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the seekers of smooth things. They thought the Pharisees were watering things down. So these folks, they moved out. They they moved out into the wilderness and said, the only way to save ourselves from culture is to create our own community with us perfect people who are going to figure this all out. Anyone know people that take themselves out of culture, create their own culture? All right. Okay, then there's the scribes. The scribes were scriptural scholars who believed to be, they were believed to be the authoritative experts in the religious law. They were looked to for guidance in those fine points of Scripture, but they were accused by Jesus of hypocrisy and neglecting the weightier matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Anyone ever encountered somebody that, boy, they can correct you. Oh, what you meant to say was this word, and, yeah, okay. <laughs> Two hands on that one. Two hands. And then there's the Sadducees. He also... Often when you hear the word priest used in the New Testament, they're often talking talking about these folks. The Sadducees, they were powerful religious leaders who served in the temple. They were known to collaborate with the government to maintain their status. 
They were not afraid to use their influence or even armed guards to punish their enemies. Anyone know anyone like that? <laughs> All right. More hands on the political one than the other one. Well, this, these are just four. There were more groups than this in the first century Palestine, the place where Jesus appeared. There were groups in that time and in that place. And see if any of these register today in our time, our place. There were groups back then that were formed around dynamic teachers and leaders. This person's really good. I'm just going to listen to their stuff. There were groups back then that divided over really small, minute doctrinal details. There were groups that mixed politics and religion together until you couldn't even tell where the religious beliefs ended and the political practices began. There were believers in Galatia that didn't understand what it meant to have freedom in Christ. And then on the other end of the continuum, there were believers in a city called Corinth that were accused of taking freedom too far and for doing things that were just not okay. See any parallels with any of those in our modern society? Oh, may I just say, for the record, in every culture, in every generation, on every continent, religion gets really, really divisive really, really quick. And it's not just Judaism. It's not just Christianity. A couple years ago, we pressed in as a church family, we pressed into Islam to try to understand more about that faith. And one of the things that was an eye-opener to me was how divided Muslims are, too. And how there's, there's Muslims that are killing other Muslims over doctrinal beliefs. This isn't just one religion thing. This is a religion thing. So when it comes to religious groups, there's all kinds of internal division and fighting. And that's just internal. How do a lot of religious folks act towards those who are outsiders? History is filled with horrific atrocities that have been committed in the name of of religion. If you believe that you can find flaws in every religious group, if you believe that horrific atrocities have been committed in the name of religion, you will get zero pushback from me on those statements. But if you've arrived at the conclusion that the problem is organized religion, that's where I'd encourage you to press a little deeper. And you won't have to press much deeper. This isn't a problem with organized religion. This is a problem with what? This is a problem with humanity, isn't it? This isn't an organized religion problem. This is a humanity problem. There's something that seems to be embedded within human nature itself. Something within us that pulls us towards pride. It pulls us towards selfishness. It pulls us towards thinking we're right and everyone else is wrong. There is something within humanity that, that seems to work against ideals like love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if you're, if you're courageous enough, if you're fair enough, to look through the lens of history, not just religious history, history, you're going to find that there is all over history. You're going to find the Lenins and the Hitlers and the Idi Amins and the Pol Pots. It won't be long before you come up with a really long list of non-religious folks on every continent 
in every generation that committed horrific atrocities against religious people. I'm about to say something right now that is about as popular as a Vikings fan in a Green Bay bar. (laughs) But I encourage you to write it down before you disagree. I encourage you to write it down. Here it is. Controversial statement. Religion can be beautiful. Religion can be beautiful. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to say this out loud with me because we are the only voices in the United States who might be saying this today. Would you say this with me? Religion can be beautiful. It can be. For humans to thrive, we need to unite around something outside of ourselves, around a set of common values and behaviors that have the potential to bring out the best in us. A framework that puts boundaries around behaviors that are destructive. Religion can do all of those things. And may I present to you, it can do so in a way that is more powerful than a social construct. Our director of outreach, Becca Backman, she's been leading up a team that's going before us as a congregation. The next series after this, we're going to press into human trafficking. So this small team, they've been going out and they've been finding the best resources, the best thinking, the people who are on the front lines of this issue. And they've been coming back and we just met with with those with the teaching team and we started processing all this. And oh my word, just rocks you. Well, one of the books that Becca recommends is this book, and and we'll give all this stuff to you later in that series, but it's a book called Make It Zero. I started reading this yesterday and it's it's an amazing book. This book is is more than just some authors talking about stuff. This book comes from people who are engaged in trying to help in this important, important, important endeavor. And as I was reading this book, it became clear really, really quick, and then they got overt really, really quick, that the whole reason that these people got off the bench and got into the game is because of their faith. It's because of their faith. Their faith compelled them to say, this is horrible, and... As a follower of Jesus, i got to do something about this. And one of the Bible verses that they quote in this book is this Bible verse. Galatians 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith. What does it say? Expressing itself through what? Love. How many of you guys think, with a show of hands, that the world would be a better place if more people lived by a code like that? Religion can be beautiful. It can be beautiful. Now, I'm not a linguist. Fact check me on everything, but especially when I say stuff about linguisosity, all right? Uh, (laughs) Check that one right there. You'll see very quickly. Fact check your pastor. does his best, but it is my understanding that the word religion comes from a Latin word, if you trace it all the way back. If you trace it all the way back, it doesn't have all the baggage that it's got today. If you trace it back to Latin, the word religion comes from a word that means to bind, to, to have a sense of obligation, and to live with a reverence for something greater than yourself. For many, many people, that's what religion is. It's aligned with a higher standard that binds them together. It compels them to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before their creator. Again, all this to say religion can be, can be beautiful. 
It can bring people together. It can unite them around beliefs and practices and behaviors that bring out the best in them. It can inspire hope and it can inspire peace. But, but, with a show of hands, here's your next set of blanks. See if you agree with this. Um, How many of you know religion can be a not good thing? (laughs) Religion can be a not good thing. It can be a not beautiful thing. The next statement in your notes is just as true as the first. There's a place to write this down. Religious practices can get in the way of religious ideals. Can I get an amen to that? Religious practices can actually get in the way of the very ideals that they were established to bring us towards. Most religions would have a much better reputation if it weren't for the people practicing them. Right? Religious people can often fail to fact-check beliefs against reality. Religious people can often create rules and codes that work against ideals like love and justice and grace and truth. Religious people are notorious for majoring in the minors and missing the point and engaging in hypocrisy that's obvious to everybody on the planet except for them. And when there aren't good checks and balances in place... And this just strikes close to home. Religious leaders, religious leaders can be as corrupt as any other person out there in any other organization. And the thing that's happening all around the world is that the religious experience of many, many people is not something beautiful. There's people, they're seeking truth and they're given myths. They're seeking community, and they're experiencing judgment. They're seeking conversation, and they're receiving moral prescription. They're seeking to make an impact with their life, and they keep running into bureaucracy. They're seeking to connect with God, but they find themselves just going through the motions. And it's no wonder that a growing number of our neighbors here in the Twin Cities are saying, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with organized religion. So many people are arriving at this conclusion that sociologists have even created a new category of people. Not too long ago, they had a category they're starting to call the nuns. That one's been around for a while. People are like, I don't want to affiliate with any religion whatsoever. There's a new category called the duns. Mike introduced me to this group. The duns. It's people who believe in the God that's testified to in Scripture, but they're just done with churches because of experiences like this. They don't believe they can effectively follow Jesus and do so in a church context. And it's hard to blame them, isn't it? Hard to blame them. But here's one of the things that many of the duns are discovering. The sociologists are picking up on this too. They're finding out that a lot of the duns, as they distance themselves from church, they're longing for that community that they used to experience. They're also finding with a lot of these duns that they have these ideals and I'm going to go out and I'm going to be able to rally people around my cause that aren't religious. And they're finding it's just as hard to rally people anywhere because they're people, right? They're finding it's really easy when they're honest to get off track in their faith, when faith isn't a part of their regular rhythm or when they don't surround themselves just with an echo chamber of people who just say all the things that they already believe. And then if you've got kids or teens... There's duns who are just grieving that there aren't other role models and examples 
and people in the lives of their kids and in the lives of their teens that are welcoming them in as Jesus did and pouring into them as Jesus did and equipping them for the challenges and the temptations that they face and putting an understanding arm around them, saying we get it and encouraging them. And that brings us to our next talk point. Many people are rethinking religious communities rather than abandoning them altogether. There are people like our church that recognize we can fall into all these traps. All of it. We can. We do. But instead of abandoning this altogether, let's rethink religious communities. And in this series, what you're going to see in this series is we're not going to advocate for just any religion because all religions are not the same. Can I get an amen to that? They are not all the same. And what we're going to do is we're going to press into a very specific religious community, and that is a community that we see developing in the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. And I absolutely love the, the, the art for this series. If you can just take a look at the front of your bullet, and I love this. Up at the top it says, Losing My Religion. And all of us who are child, children of the 80s and early 90s, right now there's a song going through our head right now, isn't there? <laughs> yeah? All right. Here's what I love about this. I love that in black it says, Rediscovering the Church of Acts. And then in white it says, The imperfect and the broken and the messy yet beautiful Church of Acts. Because the Church of Acts was all of those things. If you've got people involved in your organization, it's going to be messy unless you're just faking it. And it's going to be broken. It's going to be imperfect. But it can be what? Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, the Church of Acts, again, was all those things. Let's dive in. And I love being able to say this as we start a new series. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Acts 1.1. And as we're opening up, I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free. Each and every week we keep a stack there at that table in the back. We encourage you, please, to take one home as a gift to you. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, so the author right away says, in my first book, what was the author's name and also the name of his first book? Luke. Yep, that's the guy we're talking about here. Luke experienced at least part of what we're going to be reading in this book firsthand. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, not Luke, Acts 16, 10, the language switches to we. So Luke was actually part of this. He was in the midst of this, and he interviewed these people. So there's firsthand knowledge as well as interviewing firsthand folks. Now, many scholars note that Luke was a sophisticated writer. One of the resources we recommend in this series is a resource called Acts for Everyone by N.T. Wright. He's got two parts to his book, too, which is interesting. He's got two parts, and he says this about Luke's gospel. He says that Luke is not like Mark, aiming for the first century equivalent of the airport bookstall. Luke is aiming for what today we call, quote, the intelligent reader. And if you read and study the book of Acts, which many of you have, you'll find that there are so many layers to this book. Can I get an amen? For the, right? So on, on the very easy front top level layer, this is the, the narrative history of the early church. If you just read it at face value, you're going to find more than any other book of the Bible, history of the first century early church. But there's 
additional layers to this. And Luke gets to one of them right away. Luke testifies that in and through the acts of the early Christians, there are actions of Jesus Christ. As we're soon going to see, Jesus ascends to heaven in chapter 1, but the language that Luke employs reveals that Jesus is still present and active through his church. This is another one of the many reasons why I only advocate for one religion instead of any religion, because I don't know another religion like this, where it's the people, and then it's, it's, it's Jesus working in and through them. And again, this is all the language that if you dig deeper, you see it in, in the book of Acts. Jesus selects an apostle. It's Jesus who selects an apostle to replace Judas in 124, even though he's ascended to heaven already. He, it's Jesus who pours out the Spirit in 232 through 33. It's Jesus who appears to Ananias in 910 and Paul in 95. It's Jesus who's credited with healing a paralyzed man in 934, even though he's not there. He's somehow there. Jesus receives worship from the church in 13.2. Jesus stops a magician who is opposing the gospel in 13.11. And Jesus opens up hearts to believe the gospel in 16.14. The work of Jesus is not done. The work of Jesus is not done. Who is he working through now? He's working through his people. He's working through people. His work is continuing through a new body, the church, capital C. All right, let's go back to our text. Chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? Speaking about the kingdom of God. Remember that phrase. Remember that it comes here right at the beginning of Acts. And if you got your... Your, your Bible, flip all the way to the end. Flip all the way to the last two verses. Chapter 28, last two verses, verses 30 and 31. Say this, Paul lived. Now, this is at the very end of the book. Paul lived there, and does anyone know where the there is? It's Rome. Remember that. That's important, too. Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Proclaiming the what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is doing, at the end of the book, the same thing that Jesus was doing. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom where God is king and people are coming under God's leadership. Picking up with verse 4. Going all the way back then to Acts chapter 1, where we left off. So this is back to Jesus. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, from John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Here's another one of the many layers to this whole thing. You've got the layer of historical narrative. This is the story of the early Christian church. You've got the deeper layer of saying it's not just that simple. Jesus is working through these people. They're his body. Then there's this whole other layer. You could call this the acts of the Holy Spirit, this book, because the Holy Spirit is there. We're going to press into this in week six, but if um, I, I want to point out really quick, here's another really, really good book. Um, this is called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. This book is the best resource I've found so far that helps explain the Holy Spirit's always been at work. 
from the beginning when it was hovering over the waters, when he was hovering all over the waters. The Holy Spirit has been active and working, and especially in and through the church. Now, one of the reasons I want to point out this book is this book has a connection to communities of faith. Because many years ago, I don't know what it was, 15 years ago, something like that, there was this guy in our youth group, this young teenager named Tim Crenshaw, who many of you may know, this young teenager who noticed that there was this kid in his school in White Bear who was really struggling. And so Tim and his friend James invited this young man named Tony, Tony Arsenal, to come to church. And this young man, Tony, discovered a community unlike anything he'd ever experienced. He, he made this connection that that is about Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. He's now teaching and preaching about Jesus and the kingdom of God out in the East Coast. And every once in a while checks in and gives book recommendations. Community matters. Community matters. This matters. Let's go back to our text, picking up with verse 6. When they had come together, they asked Jesus, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a what took him out of their sight? A cloud. A cloud. One of the reasons that we recommend resources like we recommend in your notes is we want to encourage everyone to have a small resource library because there is so much in the Bible that we either forget or we don't notice or we just didn't know. And one of the things I'll confess to you is I had never stopped to think about the significance of the cloud. In my head, I'm picturing the mountainside. I'm picturing Jesus going up. I'm picturing there's clouds because it's a cloudy day. There's layers to Luke, remember? There's layers to Luke. This is not a comment about the weather. Elsewhere in Scripture, including an event that Luke records in his earlier work, Luke chapter 9, we call that event the transfiguration. There's a mountain. There's a cloud. Who's in the cloud? It's God's presence. And that's not just a New Testament thing. That's an Old Testament thing. The cloud leading the children of Israel. The cloud descending on the tent of meeting. The cloud descending on the temple. When the cloud meets earth, God is there. Here's the kind of quotes you're going to see in those resources that we recommend. This is from N.T. Wright's Acts for Everyone. Neither Luke nor the early Christians thought Jesus had suddenly become a primitive spaceman, heading off into orbit or beyond, so that if you searched throughout the far reaches of what we call space, you'd eventually find him. They believed that heaven and earth are the two interlocking spheres of God's reality, and that the risen body of Jesus is the first and so far the only object that is fully at home in both and hence in either, anticipating the time when everything will be renewed and joined together. Do you see why we recommend books like this? Some rich thinking. Wright goes on to remind us that there's a prophecy in Daniel 7 about one who, quote, is like the Son of Man who will be brought up to the clouds of heaven. Jesus' ascension into a cloud is another sign of who he really was. Again, one of the reasons I, it would 
I couldn't, with a clear conscience, say, find a religion that works for you. I can't do that with a good conscience because this is different. I don't know of another religion at Jesus' time or before. There's the copycats that came afterwards. I don't know of a, G, of a religion that came at his time or before that has anything like this. Jesus was not just another historical figure, if Luke is to be believed. He was different than them. And this is really interesting. When you put this into the context of where and when this was said, this is powerful. Where was Paul at the end of Acts? He was in Rome. Who's in charge of Rome? Roman emperor. I never knew this before. So, many of Luke's first century readers, they would have known this, that when a Roman emperor died, one of the things the Romans would be sure to circulate is a report. Every time a Roman leader would die, oh, we've got this report, this just in, this just in, Somebody saw the emperor's soul escaping his body and going into heaven. How do we know this? Well, one of the ways we know this, you could, you could fact check this. If you've got freaking fiber, fiber miles, you can fact check this. Go to Rome, and you're going to find a, a, uh, this, this first century thing, this first century thing called the Arch of Titus. Anyone ever heard of that before? All right. If you go under the Arch of Titus, you look up, you're going to see Titus sending into heaven. So this was a belief. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. So this is happening. Jesus just did this to directly contradict. Unlike Titus, Jesus didn't leave a dead corpse behind. Can I get an amen? There's no body. Except the body that is us, our body. And unlike Titus, Jesus is coming back. Let's go back to our text. Acts chapter 1, picking up where we left off, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus ascended, going, that is so cool. That's extra commentary. If I had a commentary, I'd just put that in there. That is so cool. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in heaven? To which they said, because this is so cool. That's, that's why. They said, this Jesus, who is taken up to you into heaven, will come back the same way that you saw him go to heaven. Jesus is not done. He is not done. He's at work in and through his people, and he's coming back for his bride, the church. And when he does return, all will be as it should be. Again, this is one of the reasons that I can't, in good conscience, simply point you to any religion. If I believe this to be true, how wrong would that be? This body of his, the church, this is a real group. You can look back in history and see how they changed the world when it came to widows and orphans, when it came to breaking down racial barriers, when it came down to how men treated women. I mean, just endless list. They made a difference in the world in a way that, and on a scale, that no religion can match. Anybody seen the movie Gladiator? Anybody seen that movie? All right, Gladiator. When the movie opens, the emperor Marcus Aurelius is the emperor. And in real life, at that time in that place, a special ruling of the Roman Senate at the time of Marcus Aurelius allowed imperial priests to use, quote, condemned prisoners in their arena. Who do you think were a lot of those, quote, condemned prisoners? Christians. 
Marcus Aurelius, you've got, inf- you've got documents from back in the day where he expresses how he was really impressed with their bravery, but he just couldn't understand, why don't you just comply like the rest? They didn't comply because they couldn't comply. There was something in them that was higher than themselves. They reported to a higher authority. And unlike so many of the other religions that spread using the sword, that spread using military might, that spread using all these different types of things that the world uses, this little group that started with a rabbi and some disciples, it spread by loving their neighbors as themselves, by giving thanks and and praise to the God who was even allowing them to be persecuted. And they changed the world so much that fast forward a couple more emperors down the road, and here's a quote that we've shown you guys before. In the 4th century AD, the Roman emperor Julian tried to launch pagan charities to compete with the highly successful Christian charities that were attracting so many converts. Writing to a pagan priest, Julian complained, those impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, Support not just their poor, but ours as well. And everybody can see that our people lack aid from us. This new religion that some refer to as the way was an imperfect and broken and messy thing because it involved people, right? But this religion was unlike anything the world had ever seen. And if I could assign homework between now and next week, I would encourage you, to read Acts chapters 1 and 2 because there's the framework in 1 and 2 for the rest of this series. All the things we're going to talk about the rest of the series, they're all framed out there in Acts 1 and 2. Before this journey through Acts is through, we're going to see that the boundaries for behavior that Christianity puts in place, they're designed to lead us to life. To life. We're going to see that we've been given tools and frameworks to guard against ugly organizational politics. We're going to see that the Bible understands the nature and challenges of leadership like nothing else I know. We're going to see that the early church was made up of extremely diverse people who were constantly learning from one another. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church of Jesus Christ, not simply to sanctify and empower individuals, but to sanctify and empower a body, the body of Jesus. We're going to see all this and more, and it is our sincere hope that you're going to come away from this series with a new understanding of and appreciation for this imperfect and broken and messy and beautiful body that Jesus invites us into. There's a whole lot of great English translations of the Bible out there, and each one serves a purpose. One of the reasons that we use the um, ESV a lot when I teach, at least, is because it's a more literal translation. And sometimes in other translations that aren't as literal, you, you miss things that are so important. And if we were to have time to just keep reading in Acts, in verse 15, we come across a word that many, if not most, translations translate as believers. It's talking about the believers. And that's a good religious word, isn't it? Believers. They believed. But when you take that word and you translate it more, more directly, the word actually translate better as brothers. Brothers. Friends, we are called into something that is much more than a set of doctrinal beliefs. We're called into a family. A broken, imperfect, messy family. 
And there's a place to write this down in your notes. Jesus will never lead you away from this family, which you could call the church capital C. He may lead you away from little lowercase c churches. That may happen for all kinds of reasons. But he'll never lead you away from his family. He'll lead you to some other expression of that somewhere if you're really following Jesus. But here's the thing that's so important, too. I don't want to say one without the other. Here's the last statement in your blanks. Jesus continually challenges us to rethink our what? Religion. To rethink our religion. To continually bring our religion, our practices, our devotion, our code, to bring that back in alignment with his way. When that happens, things change. When that happens, people lose their religion. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were coming to Christ. We'll see that in the book of Acts. Priests who had a lot to lose were losing their religion to follow Jesus. Roman centurions who had everything to lose were losing their religion for this new way, the way of Jesus as the worship band comes forward to close with a song, I, I want to just close with this true story that just happened this week that demonstrates the difference these communities of faith can make. How if you, if you experience authentic Christian community, it spoils you from everything else. My wife, um, Laura, and I, we have a long, long history together. We go way back. And we first met at a Christian camp. And we served at camps a long time together before we ever even started dating. And these camps were so powerful, so influential in our lives. Well, Laura was working this week. She's working, she's a manager at a store out in St. Louis Park. And she was out there, and this young woman came in. And this young woman said, you may not remember me, but I remember you. And she said, I met you at camp. My name's Sarah. And her and her friend Kelly, they used to come to this camp that we led. And she said, you need to know the difference that that experience made in my life. This is a quarter century later. And this young woman recognizes a person that she only had met for two weeks of her life. Well, then her name's Sarah. Sarah went on to explain, and, and Scott can fact check me because they were from New Ulm. Sarah and Sarah Steinke, uh, Kelly Cohn. And Sarah went on to just express, she said, because you know, she was a part of our youth group, she said, you need to know that what was happening, what God was doing in our youth group, this wasn't just something affecting us. She said this was affecting the town. The town. And I want to put this out here as a challenge to us. What would God have us do? It's not just affecting us. It's affecting a town. And what came over me in the first service, I hadn't planned to say this, but I'm so glad what came over me was, what would God do in us, not our church, the capital C church of the Twin Cities? Because we don't want people looking at us. If they're looking at us, then we're doing something wrong. What would God do in our midst, the capital C church, that would affect this entire town? Are you able to pray that big with me? Let's pray. Father, we don't know what it is, but we want you to be our vision right now. Send down your word among us. Send your spirit among us. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear and to know what you would have us to do. Your church. Don't just speak to our church so that we don't get credit. Speak to churches. Speak to your people all around the Twin Cities. What would you have us to do? 
would you have us to do that would cause this entire city to take notice? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody just stand with us for an end our time today by singing together, Be Thou My Vision.